Welcome to the Knox Podcast, featuring a sermon from the Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Kenmore, New York. For more information about Knox Church, visit our website at knoxepc.com or email us at office at knoxepc.com. To request prayer, send an email to pastor at knoxepc.com. If you open your Bibles with me to James 5, we're going to be looking at James 5 today. In your pew Bibles, it's on page 1174. If you'd like to open it up, please rise as we read God's holy word today. James 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Hard words that we read today from James 5. Let's receive them as we dive in and understand them today. Please have a seat. I'm hoping one of these days to get back to visiting South Dakota. It's actually one of my favorite states. We used to go there a lot as the kids, and go see the Black Hills. And there's apparently a museum there I've never gotten to go to, but if I ever do go back, I want to go to the city of Deadwood. Of course, that was a very famous western town. They have a museum there, and apparently, among all the the different things from the museum, uh, from the cowboy era, was an inscription they still have, they preserved, from a prospector. And the prospector wrote this, probably in frantic letters. He said, I lost my gun. I lost my horse. I'm out of food. The Indians are after me. But I've got all the gold I can carry. I think his priorities were a little out of whack at that point. See, in our country, in our world, the pursuit of money is the focal point of so many people. It becomes an obsession. And it makes sense to a point. Money offers options. We get comfort. We get food. We get security. We get better medical treatment, better legal counsel. We get better vacation destinations. When you have more money, more doors open up in your life. You have that financial padding that, you know, we could always use a little bit more of, right? My my wife says, I just want to win the lottery once, just once, you know, not being greedy here. And uh, she's like, I just want a million. I'll give the rest to the church. And I said, okay, I'll let, I'll let the session know that they, they can expect the rest of that coming in soon. The problem with money is that often we take what's important in our lives, and then we start elevating it to the level of an idol, where we're focusing on it, we're worshiping it, we're adoring it, we're striving for it so much it becomes an obsession. Well, that prospector might have been on 
the verge of death, but by gum, he had all the gold he could carry. I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you've read the Bible and been looking at how the Bible talks about your money, but it is very particular, very specific in how it addresses the money that God's given you. The Bible does ne- never says that the acquisition of money is wrong. It never says that the saving of money is wrong. But it does say, like other idols, that love of money can draw you easily away from God. One of the qualifications to become an elder in the church, according to 1 Timothy, is that an elder must not be a lover of money. That must not be a driving force in their life. Paul writes later in that letter a very famous phrase. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. Then he goes on and says, some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many kinds of grief. Hebrews 13 commands, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So what does James have to teach us about money today? As we get to this perplexing, almost confrontational passage that we kind of read and go, whoa, (laughs) that's that's James once again getting really in our face probably more than he does any point in this letter. What's going on here and what is he trying to tell us about our money? Well, James going into chapter 5 here, the final chapter of this letter, he cranks up this intensity and starts sounding for all the world like he's an Old Testament prophet. If you got in your mind the Old Testament prophets that, that roll into the city and they're full of vim and vigor and fire and brimstone and they are declaring hard words from God. You can hear this in the way James is delivering this first verse. He says, now listen, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. That's Old Testament prophecy. That's, that's the, the tone there. But what's happening is James has been building up. This is connected to what he's already been talking about. He's been focusing on pride. And he's been talking about these major downfall points in our lives of pride. And so he's already talked about how we slander and we judge other people. He's talked about how we've been arrogant about the future. But now he saved the greatest point of pride for last as he goes in to talking about money. Because he knows that the more money we have, weirdly enough, the more money you have, the greater the temptation to be pulled away from God because you have the temptation to rely on your money instead of God. In a perverse way, James is saying, perverse as in countercultural, that he's saying the poorer you are, you are more blessed because you have already a dependence on God as there and unshakable. Kind of reminds me of Scrooge McDuck. You know Scrooge? Some of you do. He's, he's a Disney character. He's a, a relation to Donald Duck. And Scrooge McDuck, the three things you have to know about this guy are this. One, that he's a businessman who goes on adventures to get as much money as he can. He's always treasure hunting. And he brings that money back. And the second thing you need to know is that he pours all that money into a giant money bin. 
and he built this multi-story tall money bin that's full of gold, and he actually swims around in the gold, in the cartoons. But the last thing you need to know about Scrooge McDuck is even though he has accumulated literally stories worth of gold, he hates to part with even a dime of it. He is notoriously stingy. He hoards and hoards, but he never, ever spends. That might seem like a cartoon character, but there are many people in the world like Scrooge McDuck. That's what James is pointing out here. In 1976, police were called to the home of one Bertha Adams, and they found her had, that this lady had died. And when the police went in, they found that she was malnourished to the point that that's what killed her. She was 50 pounds at the time of her death, nothing but skin and bones. And her neighbors went up to the police and they said, yeah, we know she was, she was hurting all the time. She, she was begging us for food. She went to Salvation Army. That's the only clothes she wore. But when her family went into her house, they found over a million dollars in cash and bonds and stocks just lying around, stuffed into boxes, stuffed under her bed. She had gotten into this gathering mentality in her head. She might have had a mental illness, but there was that men- mentality to gather but never spend, to hoard but never let loose with a single dime. And in the end, this is what ended up piercing her with many kinds of grief. Embroaching on the always delicate subject of personal finance, James decries those in the church he saw that had this gather, gather, gather mentality of hoarding, of always saving up for a time that they would never spend. And he notes that in these verses, he says, listen, one day, all of the wealth in the world will rot. All of it will be corroded. There is nothing you could save that will last forever in terms of money. And instead of taking that God-given blessing of wealth and turning around to bless others and bless God with it, he says, I note that a hoarder sins because they are so scared to let a dime go because they think they're going to become broke and destitute, that God will never provide for them again. See, you want that money as that cushion, but if I part with it, maybe I'll never get any more, and I'm not trusting God at that point. We see kind of an echo here. James, of course, is a wisdom. He's preaching on uh, the wisdom genre of literature, and we see a, a very close cousin of him in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes trying to solve one question, which was, what is my purpose in life? What is my purpose? Why am I here? And Solomon examined many different areas of our life. And one of those, this fabulously wealthy king, examined the acquisition of wealth. He thought for a hot minute, maybe that's our purpose in life, is to become as rich as possible. But when he examined it, he said in chapter 5, Whoever loves money never has enough. Let me say that again. Whoever loves money never has enough. Solomon said, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Isn't that a weird thought? You can hoard enough wealth that it actually starts to hurt you and harm you. And it does so more mentally than almost anything else. The point where you're scared because this 
is your safety blanket, and you can't let it go. But James knew it to be true. Solomon did. And the Bible urges all of us to view our wealth as a gift from God for three major things. For basic necessities in your life, for personal enjoyment. God is giving you your wealth to personally enjoy. But also to make wise investments, to invest in the kingdom, to invest elsewhere. Just like your milk, your wealth has an expiration date. The question is, how are you going to use it before it expires? Are you going to hoard it up like Bertha Adams and die, and it will never have been used? Or are you going to use it in a way that honors God today? Well, James says what's even worse than those who hoard their wealth to the point of sin is those who abuse their wealth. And this gets into verses 4 and 5 and 6 here. He says, verse 4, that he's seen some rich people deliberately cheat their workers. They're already rich, but they're cheating those who are working for them just to get a little bit extra money, robbing them a bit of that pay so that they, get, they can keep a little bit extra in their bank. In verse 5, he points out the people who overindulge in luxury to the point of excess. That's always a personal question. Where's, where's that line between do I need to live in, in poverty in a hovel and live in a mansion? Where's that line where I'm, I'm crossing between living in basic necessity and living in excess? And then James has seen other in, in verse 6. He says, who use money to turn the legal system against the innocent. In all three of these cases, people are abusing the wealth God has given them. You can imagine how God feels about that. In the Old Testament, we look at all the laws, all the rules that God established in Israel, and we notice that there is a theme that runs through many of them, that he establishes a lot of these laws to provide for and protect the poor and vulnerable in society. He is very concerned about the poor and vulnerable. Day laborers, according to the law of Moses, if you hired somebody to work in your field, you had to pay them that day so that they could t- turn around and take that money and provide for their family. You couldn't say, I'll pay you in a month, I'll pay you in two weeks. You had to pay them every single day, because every single day, these people were depending on that money to provide for their families. And there were other laws in the Old Testament that safeguarded the poor, and the widows, the orphans, and the slaves, and the homeless. God has his eyes on all these people. He knew that they were the most vulnerable And the rich and the powerful were often most tempted to take advantage of them. So God safeguarded them. And we can understand then, in that context, why James comes out roaring against those who are taking their wealth, their position in society, and abusing the poor and vulnerable, the people God wants us to protect. He says that those people who find that others are committing gross acts of injustice against them. They cry out, and what happens? Their cries go right into the ears of the Lord Almighty. Think about what he's saying right there. That when you have committed a gross injustice against somebody, especially abusing them in this way, and they cry out to God, God hears them. God hears your injustice, and he is a God of justice, and there will be a reckoning. I cannot think of anything more terrifying than knowing that I've committed a sin against somebody. They've complained to God, and God goes, I'm going to take care of that for you. 
for people who have used their wealth to oppress others, have used it to feed into their own hedonistic lifestyles, James says that they're basically fattening themselves up for the day of slaughter. That's a pleasant little image. Thank you, James. Some, weird, some very bored scientists a few years ago decided they would conduct an experiment, and they put sensors all over cattle that were going from the, the pens into the slaughterhouse. They were just curious to see if the cattle would notice anything, and they said there was no change in any of their vital signs. They didn't understand what was happening. They weren't realizing that they were step-by-step step being led to the slaughter, and so their heart rate remained the same, their brain activity remained the same. They were fattened up for the day of slaughter, and they had no idea what was coming. Well, here James tells us point blank that those who use their wealth in such abusive ways results in a person who becomes docile, who thinks they can get away with it. Well, I've done it once, I'll do it again, and I'll do it again, and I'll do it again, to the point where they become fat and docile for the day of slaughter, the day of judgment. There will be a day that they will have to answer to the Lord Almighty about how they spent their wealth and how they treated others. Our Lord gives us each different amounts of gifts and talents and blessings to use to enrich our lives and for us also to turn around and use to enrich others. Abusing what we've been given is a grave sin. It's one that God takes notice of. Well, you might notice that James only warns us against how we misuse our wealth, either by hoarding it or by abusing others. But there are plenty of examples and instructions elsewhere in the Bible how we should use our money. And I wanted to point this out. Pastor Tim Keller, he recently posted a message on Twitter that really caught my attention. And so I wrote it down. He said, pure capitalism is when you say, all my money belongs to me. Pure Marxism is when you say, all my money belongs to the state. But Christianity says, all my money belongs to God. And we should be radically generous with it as Jesus was with his riches. And I love that phrase. That's why I latched onto it. Radically generous. Radically generous. It's not foolishly generous. You're not going to make yourself destitute by giving. That's foolishly generous. God's not asking you to put yourself in the poorhouse, but to be radically generous. As God is pouring blessings into our life, he then expects us to turn around and take those, some of that blessing and pour it out into other lives and pour it out into the church and pour it out into ministries. Our time, our wealth, our efforts, our gifts. We've got to get past this mentality that our wealth is to be hoarded or abused, but rather to be used in a radically generous fashion. As we close our time together, I wanted to point out an example in the Bible of, of somebody who is radically generous. This takes place in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Chronicles. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Chronicles 29. But in 1 Chronicles, we see that David, King David, has a passion. He has a, he has a project he wants to see done more than anything else in his life. And that's to build the great temple of worship to God. The people at David's time were still worshiping in the tabernacle. Same tabernacle that Moses had constructed. And David said, I want to build a temple, a permanent 
structure. This great, he had he'd drawn up plans. He, well, I want to build this amazing structure. And God told him, David, it's not for you to do. You will not build this temple for me. Your son Solomon will do that. But God did not tell David he could not prepare for it. And David's heart was so for God and so for this project that he turned around and he started thinking about that. He was looking at all the plans, all the, all, the, all the construction plans for this temple, and he realized it was going to cost an absolute fortune to build, even in the ancient world. Just an enormous amount. And even though David knew he would not live to see the fruition of this project, he would never worship in that temple. He turned around and he said, you know what I'm going to do? Right now I'm going to bookmark my private reserves of gold and silver and iron and wood and precious stones. There's a whole list of it there in 1 Chronicles 29. He says, I'm going to put all this aside for my son that when he's ready, he can build this temple. But even then, David realized it's still not enough. My, his reserves were great, but they weren't great enough to build that temple. So David then turned to the leaders of the country, and he invited them. He said, I want to offer you an invitation to join me in this worship of giving. I want to offer you this opportunity. You don't have to. David didn't guilt them. David didn't bribe them. He didn't pressure them as a king might. He merely offered the opportunity to serve. And chapter 29 here in 1 Chronicles said, the leaders didn't even hesitate. They knew how generous God had already been to them. And they were eager for the opportunity to show a little bit back to God. And so they assembled together, all the leaders of the country of Israel, truly staggering amounts of money and raw materials to use for the temple. And combined with all of David's, it was enough. And those was what became eventually the temple of Solomon. But what I want us to know here is, in turn, this outpouring of generosity that started with David, cascaded to the leaders, then trickled down to the people. And the people were overwhelmed. In verse 9, it said, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders. For they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. Giving freely and wholeheartedly is another way of saying radically generous. They were radically generous with what God had given them. And following this huge donation, David then gives an amazing prayer. And it's, oh, I love this prayer. I want to read it to you. But I want you, as I read this prayer to you, I want you to hear how David views wealth. His own wealth. His own finance. Listen to this. David prays, but who am I? Who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this. Everything comes from you, and we have only what has come from your hand. Lord our God, all of this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart. You are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Like David, like the leaders, like the people of Israel, God invites you to be radically generous in your giving. 
How you give, what you give, what you can give, that's up to you. I don't, I don't believe in a hard and hardline rule here in the church. You need to just give the way God uh, talks to your heart to give. But he invites you to give radically generous the way he has given you already. He has blessed you from his hand. So let's take a lesson from James. Let's not abuse our wealth. Let's not hoard it up. Feel free to save. Be smart with that. But be invited to be radically generous for Jesus, however you feel led. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, nothing I can pray that's better than what David prayed here. So Lord, who are we that we can give as greatly as this? We are so blessed in this country, Lord. We have such wealth that most of human history could not even believe and understand. Lord, you give it us day after day after day. You also give us opportunities to serve through giving. I just pray that you would challenge all of us to look at our finances, look at how we give, look at what we can give. And Lord, just love you in our giving. Worship you in how we give of ourselves. Lord, thank you for what you have given to us, not only in the past, but also in the future. For we know you are a God who loves us and you just adore pouring out generous gifts upon your children. In your name, amen. To reach out to Pastor Justin, email him at pastor at knoxepc.com. Our mailing address is Knox Church, 2595 Elmwood Avenue, Kenmore, New York, 14217. Join us for worship Sundays at 10.30 a.m., either at Knox Church or on our live stream at facebook.com forward slash knoxepc. Past sermons can be found at knoxepc.com forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.